Let's say a quick uh, word of prayer before we jump into the scripture. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and worship you and raise our hands and sing, raise our voices uh, and hear your word and study it and talk about it and think about it and apply it to our lives. It's a blessing uh, for us to be able to do this every week, and we're grateful for the opportunity to do it. Uh, bless me today as I preach, Lord. Uh, help me to say things that will be instructive and useful and encouraging uh, to those that are here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, all right, so we are in the book of Mark. Uh, we are now at the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. Um, and as you know, we started chapter 1, verse 1, and we've just been trucking straight through. So we're going to jump right into um, Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 34 to chapter 9, verse 1. And calling the crowd to him, to Jesus, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is an amazing verse. I think that part of this, the beginning part of this anyway, must have been one of those instances in Jesus's ministry that made his disciples crazy. Because if you remember last week, Jesus turns to his disciples and says to them directly, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, people, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're a prophet. Jesus turns to Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die at the hands of my accusers. And Peter, if you remember, jumps in and says, no, 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 no. None of that's going to happen. You're going to sit on the throne. You're going to be the ruler of Israel and we're going to be your you know, your team, your, we're going to be royalty in your kingdom. And Jesus says, Peter, he calls him Satan. Actually, he says, Satan, get behind me because your mind is set on the things of the world. My mind is set on the things of the spirit. So the, the, remember that uh, Je uh, Jesus's disciples at this point, still, they don't get the fact that he's talking about a kingdom that isn't that isn't a political military kingdom. They want him to be the, the disciples, remember, are self-interested guys. OK, they've been following him around and their their thought process is, hey, as soon as Jesus gets onto the throne, I'm his right hand man. I'm going to be right up there. You know, I'll probably have a, a big chunk of Judea, which I get to oversee. Right. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way this is going to work. So uh, this is another one of those passages where Jesus is making for the first time. It says he went to his disciples and the other people, and he's making his first public invitation to follow me. 
He's saying, hey, this is this is I want you to follow me. And what he does is he does the opposite of what any of us would do. Most of us, when we want someone to follow us, when we're trying to get public, um, uh, you know, support, what we're going to do is we're going to tell you all the benefits, all the things that we're going to do for you. And we're going to obscure or not talk about all of the costs that's required of you. I mean, in this political season, we see it on both, both, obviously both sides of the aisle. What every politician does is say, hey, here's what I'm going to do for you. And then, oh, it might cost a little bit, but they don't, nobody wants you to know what it's going to cost. You know, um, and and Jesus, Jesus comes right out and says, if you want to follow me, here's what it's going to cost. Your life It's going to cost everything. And his disciples are cringing because, you know, they're like, this is not the way that you get followers. Uh. This is the opposite. This is the, this is a reverse sales pitch is what I like to think of it as. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to pick up a Roman implement of torture and carry it with you because you're going to need it. And his disciples are saying, wow. Um, when we when I was starting to date my wife now, see, I've got the microphone. Um, you know, what I wanted to do was to present myself in the most attractive way and to obscure or to sort of hide any of the attributes about myself that I wasn't so proud of, right? Here's, here's what I did. I had a strategy when I wooed my wife. If there are single men in the audience, take note, okay? Um, so here's what I did. The first thing I did was I went down to the barbershop, the local barbershop in my neighborhood, and I got myself a very nice Haircut. It's just a nice natural fade all the way down to the skin, all the way around, looking really sharp, okay? Then I went over to, it was either Marshall's or TJ Maxx, or Nordstrom Rack, I think it was, and I picked out a number of bright, colorful shirts. I had read somewhere about the peacock theory of dating. Has anyone ever heard of that? When you're a single guy, the single guys know what I'm talking about. You go online. And, and you, so I read this peacock theory of dating, and that is if you're a man and you want to attract a woman, you know, like a peacock, you need some plumage. You need some bright, shiny, colorful outfit so that girls will be attracted to you. So, hey, I'm, I'm like, all right. So I go down to Nordstrom Rack. I got my teal shirt. I got my purple shirt, my aqua marine shirt. I've got it all dialed in. Then I go down to the boot warehouse, the boot warehouse near my, near my house in Phoenix, and I bought myself a pair of roping boots that had inch and one and a half inch heels. All right. This gives me a lift. You see, this gives me a little more height because I know that that's attractive. So in fact, my, my buddies used to, when they, when they see me wearing them, they'd be like, Oh, I see you have your man heels on today. (laughs) So I don't wear those much anymore, but there are some two tone, like wrapping roping boots with like little tassels and big heels. They're ridiculous. You will never see me wearing them. Um, then I had a beat up old Ford Ranger pickup truck and it was old and it was beat up and it was nasty. And so I sold it and I started looking around and what I was trying to find, I wanted to find like a, an, a vintage Cadillac. I just thought that would just be so cool. Right? So for weeks I was looking in the auto trader and I'd go and it was in alphabetical order. So I'd go Cadillac, Cadillac, and I couldn't find one that I liked, you know? And one day I flipped the page from Cadillac and right after Cadillac is Camaro, Camaro. So I got myself a 2000 convertible Camaro. I had a lot of miles on it. Um, 
I should have I should have bought it in the daytime. I actually picked it out at night. Um, it had monsoon speakers. It had chrome wheels, and the, the the icing on the cake was it had this color shifting metallic paint job, so that when you you know drove in the sun or in the, it looked it looked blue or purple or green. You know, I had changed colors, which I thought was cool because now that goes with my my peacock plumage. And I got my hair cut, I got my man heels, I got my bright dress, my bright shirts, and I got this color shifting Camaro. I am set. I drive out to California, I'm all smiles, I'm buying dinners, I'm cracking jokes. I've got, you know, I've got the presentation, okay? I've got the presentation. Um, I'm making her mom laugh, I'm, you know, hanging with her dad. But, of course, no one can keep up appearances forever, Right? You can't keep up appearances forever. And so over the course of the next six months or a year, that's when we start to peel the layers off the onion. That's when, you know, she starts to see me when I'm surly or when I'm frustrated or when I'm selfish or prideful. She starts to see these sides of me that, you know, I had covered up with the peacock feathers the whole time, right? But it's only after you get into this reality. It's only after you can see the real person that you can really start to develop a real honest deep relationship. And so Jesus comes right out of the gates and to, to, to the people that would follow him. And he says, look, I just want to tell you straight up right out of the gates. If you're going to follow me, he says, it's going to cost you. He, he, he foregoes the dating period altogether. He jumps in and he says, it's going to cost you. It's going to be, it's going to be tough. If you want to follow me, I love this about Jesus. I love this about the gospel. I love that when he is coming to us, Jesus is not a salesman, okay? He's not a huckster. He's not a, he's not a con man. He's not one of these uh, guys on TV that tries to cajole us into following him by promising us all of these amazing things that are going to happen to us. He's not doing that. In fact, he barely mentions the benefits of following him when he, in this passage. He barely mentions the benefits. He just says, it's going to cost you. Jesus is not writing checks that he can't cash. And I love that about Jesus, and I love that about the gospel. He says, unless you're willing to renounce, this is what he says. This is his sales pitch. Unless you're willing to renounce all that you hold near and dear, your family, your career, your wealth, your ego, your pride, your will, your identity, unless you're willing to surrender that to me, unless you're willing to, to give that up to God, then you can't follow me. And his disciples are just standing there in shock because they're going, Look, how are you going to how are you going to build a following if this is your sales pitch? You know, um, it's only in the last couple decades that we've been required that uh, manufacturers have been required to add labels, you know, warning labels to their products. And so we hear now on these ridiculous commercials, like you'll hear a commercial or see a, a TV ad for a pharmaceutical drug of some kind, you know, and there's this, uh, you know, a nice actress w- with a really melodious voice, and she's talking about all the benefits of this drug, and, and you know, she t- evokes this image of somebody waltzing through the grain and the sun sort of bouncing off their, their face and just this beautiful image, right? And then you hear the guy, the, the, the male voice come on that's also a nice voice but, but quiet, a little quiet and a little fast, right? Kind of talks fast, and he says, he says, uh, 
Side effects may include mood or behavior changes, anxiety, panic attacks, trouble sleeping, impulsivity, irritability, agitation, hostility, aggression, restlessness, hyperactivity, depression, suicidal thoughts, burning or tingling in the arms, hands, feet, or legs, changes in appetite, constipation, diarrhea, difficulty, keeping balance, dizziness, drowsiness, dry mouth or throat, gas, headache, heartburn, stomach pain, tenderness, uncontrollable, shaking of a part of the body, unusual dreams, weakness, chest pain, and or sudden death. And then the music comes back on, and the actress says, and it's just going to be so great when you take this drug. <laughs> Advertisers are doing everything in their power, right, to, to, to focus on the benefits of their product and to minimize the costs, the side effects. Um, Jesus, in his pitch, and I love this, he does not mention the joy, the adventure, the excitement of being a follower of Christ. He doesn't mention the forgiveness, the peace, the comfort, the depth of meaning and purpose that results in a life of following him. He doesn't mention any of these wonderful characteristics, the restored relationships, the renewed integrity, the hope, the redemption, the freedom, the blessings. We are learning that Jesus in his paradoxical style only mentions the price that you'll have to pay. But he did it for a reason. He did it for a purpose and he knew what he was doing. Jesus knew that in just a matter of months from the time that he put out this public invitation, he knew that he would soon be taking on a cross, walking up a long, lonely hill on Golgotha, the place of the skull, and he would have to sacrifice his life for, for us. And he knew that those first century Christians that followed him would be doing the same. They would face persecution, rejection, punishment, and even death for their allegiance to him. They would be tortured, lynched, burned, and beaten, all for proclaiming their love and loyalty to this man who claimed to be the Christ, and he was right. If you look at the history of the early Christian church, it is startling. I was studying it this week. It's, it's stunning what happened to these people and what they were willing to do and what they were willing to go through for their allegiance to Christ. Uh, we read actually in Acts about the very first, what we know to be the, the first martyr, what we believe to be the very first martyr, and that's Stephen. Um, the young, young Stephen was a disciple of Jesus, and in the book of Acts it describes that uh, in, 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 instead of recant his faith, he claimed that Jesus was the Messiah, and he was stoned to death. And, in fact, Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul, was complicit in Stephen's stoning. He stood by and held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. Um, James the Great, and th that, was, that was in 34 A.D. That was about a year after Jesus' own crucifixion and, and, and ascension. Um, James the Great, in A.D. 44, was beheaded for proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Philip, the apostle, was crucified in 54 A.D. Matthew, the evangelist, was killed in 60 A.D. for refusing to deny his faith in Christ. Remember, these are the guys that we've been talking about the last couple months, the last six months. These guys, these guys that we've kind of grown to love, these guys that are sort of klutzy and kind of not getting it and sort of not totally understanding it, you know, they ultimately become martyrs for the sake of Christ. Um, James, the brother of Jesus, 
remember several months ago we talked about James. James was one of Jesus' brothers who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, he came with his brothers when Jesus was preaching at someone's house, and he came and knocked on the door, and they said, we want our brother. He's going crazy, you know. James didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but then when he uh, saw him resurrected, he became a believer to the point that um, he became the head of, of the church in Jerusalem. And when he was asked to recant his faith in, his, in Christ, he refused to do it and was, and was stoned to death. Uh, Matthias was also stoned. Uh, Andrew, remember Andrew, Peter's brother? We met him a few weeks ago on the fishing boat. Uh, he was crucified for denying his belief in Christ. Mark was was. Uh, was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew flayed alive and crucified. Thomas was killed with a spear. Luke the evangelist was was hanged. And Simon the zealot was also crucified in 74 AD. I mean, all of these guys, all of these guys who followed Jesus um, and, and were willing to, you know, willing to follow him, follow in his footsteps, ultimately, when asked to recant, and say, look, all you need to say is you just need to agree that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. They said, we've seen him risen from the dead. We know him to be our Messiah. We know him to be our Lord. And we cannot recant that. And they were killed for that. Um, these early Christian martyrs counted the cost of following Christ. He told them what it was going to cost them. They counted the cost and they paid the price. There's um, some really um, interesting historical writings about the early Christians and about their martyrdom and persecution. Um, one of the greatest Roman historians and orators, Tacitus, uh, provides in his annals an expanded reference to the persecution and martyrdom of the Christians who lived in Rome during the rule of Nero, which was um, 54 to 68 A.D., and it's clear from it's clear from Tacitus's account that he's not a Christian and he's not a fan of Christians, but he provides this rich um, background, this rich historical background, um, non-biblical history about the persecution of Christians. Um, in fact, it, it it picks up his history picks up after Rome had uh, there, the great fire of Rome in uh, 64 A.D. There was a huge fire that spread through Rome, burned for six days. Um, after it burned, several people said, well, p- people started thinking that perhaps Nero, the emperor, started the fire himself. And they started, rumors started circulating that Nero had done this because the thought was that he wanted to clear away a portion of the area. He wanted to sidestep the Senate, clear away a portion of the area in the middle of Rome so he could build his palace. And in fact, he did build a very big, opulent palace right there in the, in the location where the fire burned. So the rumors started going around that Nero started this fire and he was playing the harp and singing while, while Rome was burning. And so in an order to deflect the blame from himself, Nero found uh, that he could um, point the finger at the sect of Christians, the relatively small sect of Christians that were in Rome at that time. And Tacitus's, um, Tacitus's annals, uh, pick up here, and I just want to read you a part of it. This is straight out of um, Tacitus's writing. It says, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. 
Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight has had expired. It is a stark and startling image of the of the atrocities that early Christians faced uh, for their faith. As evinced by this historical document, the early Christians, our spiritual mothers and fathers, suffered greatly for their faith, for our faith. And as Christians in a free society, wor- worshiping God as we like, we owe a debt of gratitude to these early Christians. Don't we? I mean, we really owe a debt to them for carrying on the faith despite persecution. Um, and... the th- you know, the persecution obviously was meant to stop and halt the advance of this faith. But in that paradoxical way that just seems to happen throughout history, it, it did the exact opposite. The, perse- the persecution of the early Christians did not stop them. It didn't slow them down. It did not obstruct their faith, but rather it strengthened their resolve. Their pain crystallized for them their purpose. Their suffering fortified their commitment. What man meant for their evil, God used for their good. How many can attest in some small way to instances in your own life where you went through something that was tough and difficult and you struggled and you, and, and, and you hurt, and yet as you came out of it, you were stronger, you were more refined, you were better, you were more equipped than you were before you went through that problem. Has anybody ever experienced something like that? The early church uh, father, Tertullian, observed the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because it was during that period of terrible, dark persecution that people really started to dig in their heels and they started to say, we're going to stand for this. We're going to fight for this. God used their suffering to demonstrate the wickedness of their oppressors and to proclaim the central truth of his teaching that we die to be reborn. We go down to come up. We bow low to be exalted. We surrender in order to triumph. We gain by giving. We reign by serving. We find ourselves by giving ourselves away. This is the gospel. This is the teaching of Christ. What does this passage mean for us? This take up your cross and follow me. Give your life to, you know, to find it. What does this mean for us? 21st century American Christians in the United States. We are not oppressed. We are not persecuted. We are not victimized. We may occasionally be, be inconvenienced, but by comparison to our Christian ancestors, we have it very easy. In fact, there are points in our history as Christians that are shameful to, to, to Christians because once we were not oppressed, there have been instances in the history of Christianity where we became the oppressors. We became the persecutors and we victimized others. You know? And so that is a, a part of, a, of Christian history where we see Christians getting completely off track of, this, of the message of Christ. And instead of serving others, they harmed others. But today, we are in a place where we can worship publicly. We can proclaim our faith without fear of reprisal. Uh, We don't suffer for our faith. We're not ostracized for our faith. We're not burnt at the stake. We're not stoned. We're not hung. We're not crucified. Not here. There are places around the world where Christians are persecuted. 
And we need to bear them in mind. We need to keep them in our prayers. And we need to, to think about ways that we can support them. Um, but here in the United States today, we're just not, we're not being persecuted. So how does this passage relate to us? What does it mean to us? Take up your cross. I think that the scripture presents us with a challenge. Okay? A challenge to take on an unimaginably exciting adventure into the mystery and the majesty of God's kingdom. I see the challenge as fourfold. Four things that this passage, I believe, challenges us to do today. Number one, sacrifice your will. Number two, crucify your ego. Number three, find your new life. And number four, do it now. Sacrifice your will, crucify your ego, find your new life, and do it now. What does this mean? Sacrifice your will. Sacrificing your own personal desires for a cause greater than yourself is perhaps one of the most challenging and also the most rewarding acts you will ever undertake in your life. And it is absolutely essential if you are to accomplish anything worthwhile. Sacrificing your will for a cause greater than yourself is absolutely imperative if you are going to accomplish anything in life. If you are going to be in a healthy relationship, how many know that there are times where you sacrifice your will? You sacrifice your desire. You have a particular desire to do something, but you don't. You subvert that desire. You give that desire up because you're try- you've got something greater in mind. You're serving something greater than yourself. With your job, with your kids, with your schools, friendship, fitness, Fitness, who knows that there's some sacrifice of desire to, to, to get in shape. Sacrificing your will is about not quitting when the path gets tough. It's about not giving up when faced with adversity. It's about being guided by your commitment rather than by your desire. It's the commitment that guides your actions, not your desire. I have that argument with myself every morning when it's time to get up and go running. Now, I say every morning. It's not actually every morning. I run three days a week, supposedly. Every morning, it's, it's a question of who am I going to obey, my desire or my commitment, okay? My, if I be, obey my desire, I'm going to roll over, and I'm just going to keep sleeping. If I obey my commitment, I got to pull on those stinky running clothes and get out on the street and go running. Now, for me, I have a running partner, my neighbor, so I know that if I obey my desire, then I'm going to get a lot of grief from my neighbor. So that helps me to honor my commitment. But we all face this in every instance of our life. What is it that we're going to follow, our desire or our commitment? An athlete in training, starting a new job, building a business, finishing school, completing a project, each one of these Each one of these require that you, at some point, honor your commitment over your desire because your desire is not going to always stay at the same strength and the same level. not always going to want to do what you need to do in order to accomplish whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish, right? So sometimes, at some point, you sacrifice that will, you sacrifice that desire for the commitment. Um, Sacrificing your will is what happens after your decision to follow Christ. Following Christ is a life of discipleship. It's a life of discipleship. Salvation is jumping in the pool. 
Discipleship is swimming laps. Salvation is the wedding. Discipleship is the marriage. Salvation is putting on the uniform. Discipleship is going to war. There's a big difference between this moment where you have this feeling and this excitement about God and you, you maybe commit yourself to him, but there's a, there's a difference between that and the, dis, the discipleship, the discipline of following Christ day in and day out. Jesus is saying, if you want to be with me, it's more than checking a box. It's walking with me your whole life through thick and thin, no matter what comes. It's about choosing my path rather than your own over and over and over again. Have you ever seen the guy? I, I love I love these guys and I've been this guy before. Have You ever seen the guy who's like going to going to start being a cyclist, for example, and he gets the helmet and he gets the spandex outfit and he gets the clip on shoes and he gets the ultra lightweight bike, you know, and he rides twice and then it rains <laughs> and now the bike and the helmet and the spandex and the clip-on stuff is all down in the basement? Is there evidence in your life of decisions that didn't turn into commitments? Is, I know there is. In my house, in my basement, there is evidence of decisions that didn't turn into commitments. And Jesus is saying, hey, the decision is great, but, but just know that right behind the decision is this commitment, this deep Deep commitment, sacrificing your will in every area of your life and giving your will to God. That is what I think it means for a 21st century Christian to pick up their cross. And that is sacrifice your will and give it to God. Are there areas in your life that you have not given to God? Are there areas in your life that you've cordoned off and boxed off and you either consciously or unconsciously, you're not allowing the gospel to infiltrate that part of your life. Are there parts of that? Are there any, is there any part of your life that's like that? That's what Jesus is talking about. He says, I want you to crack that part open and let me into that part. Let me have that part of your, of your life. Jesus is the greatest example of this. In the garden of Gethsemane, he says, ultimately, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to struggle. Let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Let your will be done. Even Jesus has to, has to sacrifice his own will to accomplish what God put him on this earth to do. Number two, crucify your ego. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does this mean? What does this mean? The word life here in this passage is the Greek word psyche, from which we derive the word psychology. Psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E. It can mean soul, mind, life, self, etc. Jesus is saying that if you try to hold on and protect this thing that you think of as yourself, you'll lose it. But if you give it to me, you'll save it. What does that mean? He's saying something. I think he's saying something extremely profound here. Extremely profound. I think what he is saying is that if you ground your identity, yourself, your ego, if you ground your identity in the temporary and transient things of this world, you will lose your life 
when those temporary things pass away. When that thing dissipates and all things do, and you ground yourself, your identity in that thing, and it goes away, you're lost. Your life is gone. You're not you. I, I have a friend who, I need to call him on it at some point when we become better friends, but I have a friend who insists on being called by his academic title, okay? He's got, he's got a PhD, and he wants you to know it. He wants everyone to know it, and there's not an email or a letter or a conversation or a phone conversation where it doesn't come up. And every time he raises it, I want to I, I, I just say, hey, man, look, I'm proud of you. It's, you've done a good job. You've done a, you've done a lot of hard work. It represents a great thing you've done. But you know what? You could just let that go now, okay? You can just let it go because grounding yourself in your academic achievement, we're all looking at that and going, man, we don't respect that. We don't respect that because if you're, if you're grounding yourself in achievement and then you fail, what are you? If you ground yourself in your career and then you lose your job, then you're lost. You know, if you, if you ground yourself in your relationship with someone else and that's your identity and that person leaves you or dies or something happens to them, who are you? Jesus is saying, don't put your identity in anything of this world. Don't put your identity in anything that's transient or temporary. And everything is. That's what he's saying. Sacrifice your ego. Put your identity in me. Put your identity in God. Ground yourself in something that's eternal. Then you will have life. Then you will have life. I think he's saying something deeply profound, even to us who are not first century Christians, even to us who almost certainly will never have to literally pick up a cross. Most of us will never have to make a the ultimate choice of, you know, do I recant my faith in Christ or or do I get killed? Most of us will never have to face that. And yet he's still asking us to make a sacrifice, sacrifice ourself, sacrifice our ego, sacrifice our will. John the Baptist, when he was speaking of Jesus, his disciples came to him and, and they started asking him about Jesus. And they were wondering, you know, wh- what's going on with Jesus? Why is he getting popular? And he's baptizing people over there. And you were the thing, you know, you were like the main guy. And now he seems to be taken over. What's going on? And John the Baptist says, I must decrease and he must increase. That's the plan. And if I'm going to, if my, my calling in life is going to be fulfilled, I need to be I need to decrease and he needs to increase. And that's what has to happen for us. We have to get ourselves out of the way of what God wants to do through us. Okay, because when we are trying to, when we are trying to, to stand on our own self, when we're trying to stand on our own will, our own ego, our own accomplishments, God, there's not room for God to really express who you truly are through you. Does that make sense? Philippians 3, Paul, I love Paul because he, he, he's, <laughs> he, he says this in this sort of nice long passage. And what he's basically saying is no one, no one has the credentials that I have in the religious arena. That's what Paul's saying. Okay. In Philippians 3, he says, if somebody else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in themselves, I have more. 
And then he tells you all the things that he's got in his back pocket. Circumcised on the eighth day. That's the right way to do it. Of the people of Israel. I'm an Israelite. Of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm of a a high-ranking tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee, he says. That's about the best you can get. We're the most observant. We're the most zealous. We're the most, you know, we do the most. We work the hardest. We're the best. As for zeal, persecuting the church. He says, I was so zealous in my religious fervor that I persecuted people who didn't believe like me. And that's a, that's a, that's a thumbs up in certain circles. Um, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He says, I wasn't sinning. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I had it down. I had all the grain measured. I had it down. All, I had all my I's dotted, all my T's crossed. What is more, he says, oh, but whatever were gains, he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. All that means nothing to me. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He's lost everything. He lost his career. He lost his his uh, status. He lost everything. And he counts it as nothing. For the love of Christ and for the knowledge of Christ, I consider all of that garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul is saying, I've got all of these accomplishments, I got all this stuff, and I'm just counting it as nothing. Because compared to the righteousness of Christ, compared to the, to the brilliance of what God can do through me, all of this means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. I think Jesus is asking us to give our ego to him. Crucify your ego, and what you will find is a new resurrected you. A new you will begin to emerge that will be unrecognizable to your old self. This leads us to point number three, which is find your new life. Find your new life. I met a guy uh, this week. Fascinating guy. He had had a lot of health problems, and he had a lot of health problems in his family. They had diabetes. They had obesity. They had uh, high cholesterol, heart disease, a lot of issues, and he was a you know, maybe three years ago, he he struggled with a lot of that. He was um, uh, just in, in really bad shape. Uh, and he began to make some radical changes in his diet and in his exercise regime, um, his commitment to these things. The guy, when I met him, I met him this week, and you would just, he just, you, I can't even imagine what he must have looked like before. Now he weighs 160 pounds. He's, he's a member of the local racing club. His stats on all of those measures, you know, the cholesterol and all that, it's all great. Um, he just, he's run three marathons in the last two years. He just qualified for Boston. And any of you who are runners know you got to run a marathon in three hours and 10 minutes or 15 minutes for his age group. He ran it in three hours and 10 minutes. His life now is not recognizable from the life that he once had. It's just a totally different life. And I think what Jesus is telling us is that when you really sacrifice these things to him, when you sacrifice your will, you sacrifice your ego, you let him take over your life, the new person that emerges is going to be radically different from the old person that existed. I can attest to that personally. there, There were years and years in my own life where I just wanted 
to do it my way. I did not want any, I did not want God in my life. I did not want Christ in my world. I wanted to let everybody know that I could handle it myself. I've told you this. I've talked about this before, you know. But you know what? I can tell you honestly, I don't, I didn't come close to being who I'm really called to be, who I really am, until I surrendered all of that to God. Because it's only by surrendering that to God. See, God is your creator. God made you. God has a design. God has a plan. God has a, a, a way that he wants you to be. And when you bar him from, a la- from working through you, then you think that you're maintaining yourself. You think that you're being yourself by doing that. You're not. You're, being, you're not being what God would have you be. You're not being all that God would have you be. So when you open your heart, you open your life, you submit your will to him, then he moves through you and you become this person that you are truly designed to be. You're truly designed to, to you, you get to fulfill your calling in life. So if you really want the real you, open your heart and let yourself go. Give it up. Give it up and the real you emerges in a way that you could never imagine. And I'm not putting on a sales pitch. That's the truth, man. That's my own experience. His will becomes your will. His mind becomes your mind. His identity becomes your identity. His strength becomes your strength. His power becomes your power. If you open it up to God, you get to be what he wants you to be. He works through you. He moves through you. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes, this is, this is, he's writing about what Jesus is saying in this passage. And he says that Jesus is saying, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, he says, but to kill it. Not just torture it, kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it. I want to have it out. Hand over the natural self, he says, and all the desires which you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are wicked. Hand over the whole outfit, and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. You see, by giving yourself to God, you don't lose yourself. You don't disappear. You actually find your real self when you give yourself to God. The self that God formed you to be the ideal version of you. You become the true you because you become the person God wants you to do, to, to be. And that leads us very, very quickly to point number four, and that is do it now. In nine one, Mark 9, chapter 1, Jesus says something that's baffling to uh, theologians. He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here. He's talking to the disciples and the people. Standing here now who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, how is that possible? The kingdom of God, doesn't that mean like, you know, like a gold city off in the clouds? Doesn't that mean like something way off in the distant where cherubs play harps, you know, and and, and, and on cards, you know? No, Um, no. Throughout the gospel, Jesus keeps saying, and this is a truth that he just keeps saying over and over. The kingdom of God is here. Remember in chapter 1, verse 1, he said, hey, I just want you to know the kingdom of God is here. Remember when he said that? It's here. The kingdom of God exists wherever people allow God to rule and reign supreme in their hearts. 
How do I enter the kingdom of God? How do I enter the kingdom of God? Is it a physical location? How do I enter the kingdom? You enter the kingdom by letting God be the king. And when God is the king, when God is your king, you're in his kingdom. That's how that works. When God is your king, you are in his kingdom. That's why Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, he says, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying, I want the kingdom to come here on earth in your heart. Where is the kingdom? It's neither here nor there. He says it's within you. When Jesus died, rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit came and descended uh, upon the believers. The kingdom of God became a present reality in the hearts of the people who believed. The spirit of the kingdom of God is not it's, it's not here or there. It's righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Has anyone ever heard that scripture before? Jesus is saying it's here. It's now. If you want to be the real you, you want a transformed life. Do you want your real self? Then let God become your king. Let your creator guide your steps. Walk with him. Talk with him. Give him your will. Give him your ego. Let him transform your life and make you into the person he designed you to be. Let him reign supreme in your life. And when he calls you to lose your life for his sake, know that behind that request is the promise of a life of greater joy, greater hope, and greater adventure than you could ever imagine without him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this passage today. We thank you, Lord, for your scripture. We thank you, Lord, for teaching us these truths about sacrificing ourselves and giving ourselves to you. And the promise behind that, Lord, is that we will actually become the person. We'll have, we'll have a life so much more full than the life that we have now, God. We ask, Lord, that you lead us and guide us this week. Help us to think on these things. Help us to, to incorporate these into our lives. Help us as this week as we go forward, Lord, to submit ourselves to you in the way we treat one another, in the way we treat our spouse, in the way we treat our children, in the way we treat our colleagues and our coworkers. Help us to remember, Lord, to sacrifice our ego, to serve others, Lord, and to humble ourselves and enter your kingdom on our knees, Father. We ask you, Lord, to be with us this week. Help us to glorify you in all that we do. We thank you, God, for your strength. We thank you for your wisdom. And we thank you, Lord, for coming into our hearts, transforming us and making us new. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So at this time, I, I want to invite all of you to participate in some way or another in the service. Um, you can just remain.